Welcome back. This week, there is a lot to talk about. Not only has Jen Shaw been sentenced to federal prison, we're going to cover it, but there's also a very detailed probable cause affidavit in the Idaho murders case and a TikTok lawsuit that's associated with it that is absolutely wild. So we're going to talk about social media, the roles it's playing in these cases that we're all talking about, and the key takeaways for me from that affidavit. If you want my full first reacts, first look of that affidavit, me going through the entire thing is over in long form on YouTube. Before we get into today's show, though, we have to thank Green Chef. It's 2023. Why can't meals support your healthy lifestyle and taste good too? Green Chef has made my life so much easier. And with Green Chef, it's healthy and delicious. Get 60% off plus free shipping with code EMILYBAKER60 at greenchef.com slash EMILYBAKER60. Let's get in to today's show. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. Well, y'all, it's... Is it the final chapter? I mean, as Jen Shaw said in season two, the hubris of season two tagline was, the only thing I'm guilty of is being Shaw amazing. She's now been, well, not really found guilty. She pled guilty to, um, you know, conspiracy to commit wire fraud. And we learned quite a lot more about it in the sentencing memorandums that I've been covering. The government brought all of the receipts and some of those receipts, well, they were for counterfeit bags. It if you know, you if you know, you know. If you're not watching over on YouTube, you might have missed that one, but it was fascinating. Season three, Jen Shaw said, I'm fighting for my life, not your approval. The internet has been weighing in since her sentencing on Friday, January 6th. The federal judge sentenced her to six and a half years of federal prison. And the internet is mixed. Her plea deal set her sentencing range up to 14 years. And here's the thing with the sentencing range up to 14 years. The charge itself carries 30. She's not going to get the top. She has no prior criminal record. That's just that's just what it's going to be. But they set the range at 14. So this is roughly in the middle of the range. But the government was asking for 10 years. Jen Shaw's attorneys were asking for three years. And the PSR, the, the pre-sentencing report that's done by the, the department by a neutral third party, was asking for six. So it doesn't surprise me that the judge was kind of right in line with what that PSR suggested and with what other co-defendants in this particular scheme had been sentenced to. But what we learned in the government sentencing memorandums was a lot more about the victims in this case and that the victims would have come to testify. The government suspected that this is why Jen Shaw decided to plea. I can absolutely understand um, why they said that, looking at everything that they laid out, they, the amount of things that were filed running up to this sentencing date were wild. And then we see the sentencing come down. Jen Shaw makes a tearful statement saying that she's sorry. And then she has till February 17th to turn herself into custody. And we immediately see media outlets reporting that she is having a large dinner for 20 in New York City the night of her sentencing. We're going to see a lot more, I think, between now and her turning herself into custody February 17th. 
Yes, she can absolutely appeal, but she can only appeal the sentence. Because she pled guilty, she can appeal that the judge sentenced her too high. I don't think that's realistic. I don't think Jen would waste the money. She's agreed to over $9 million in restitution, $6.5 million of that in forfeiture. Forfeiture being the government comes and takes your shit, whether it's real or not. Why I keep making that joke is because the government submitted a forfeiture affidavit that showed all of the real designer goods that they took and then all of the counterfeit designer goods that they also recovered from Jen Shaw's closet when they did that um, search warrant and raid when she yeeted herself out of the, or yoded herself out of the beauty lab and laser parking lot and ran, <laughs> ran and was then, was then pulled over outside of camera range over um, on the side of the road. But you know, we know. We know now the Jensha knew a lot more about this because the government included in their sentencing memorandum a whole bunch of text messages showing that Jensha knew when the arrests of the co-defendants went down. So when she lies to the cast and is like, hey, um, Sharif's in the hospital, I have to go, whatever call she got that gave her a heads up, she knew they were coming for her. And I think she didn't want that to be on camera. I, th I, I think that would have been deeply embarrassing for her. So. That's what we got. But I think 6.5 years makes sense in light of what other co-defendants have gotten in this case. I understand it feels low to a lot of people. She will serve about 85% of that, depending on what she chooses to do in prison. She's been asked, well, she's asked the court to send her the same prison camp in Texas that Elizabeth Holmes asked to. Hopefully the two of them don't start um, brainstorming business ideas while they're in custody and maybe learn that these are not just bad marketing practices, that these things were fraud. It will be very interesting to see what comes next. What do you think? This is going to this is going to be kind of the end. Are we at the end of the era of girl boss too close to the sun? Are we are we done yet? Are we done yet? <laughs> Sometimes if it's too good to be true, it's not shaw amazing. It's just fraud. And I wanted to say shot and fraud, but that actually has a real meaning, but you know, that's kind of what the internet is experiencing, seeing Jen Shaw. I said that awkwardly. That's what the internet is experiencing, seeing Jen Shaw be sentenced. In this case, I would love to know your thoughts. Let me know down below and on the podcast. You can let me know in your reviews of the podcast, or you can come over to social and let me know what you think. Before we move on to our next story, we need to take a moment to thank our sponsor. You know, as opposed to 20. 23, new year, new me. I kind of like new year. It's about me. And if you're ready for it to be about you and you're ready for your partner to make it about you too, maybe it's time to consider today's sponsor, Manscaped, because they have everything you need for the hair down there. Look, if you're ready to take your personal grooming to the next level, there is nothing better than the lawnmower 4.0. It even has a light. It's super convenient especially when I'm trimming my husband's, you know, hair at the back of his neck, folks. I don't know what you thought I was going to say. The hair at the back of his neck, it makes it easy to see. And it works great for that, though it's made for the hair down there. But you can't forget my favorite. The Weed Whacker tackles all the pesky hair up here. It is for nose and ears. It's one of my favorite products. They also have great body care, like their two-in-one shampoo, conditioner, easy body wash, and this great little scrubber that I've now got my kids into exfoliating, and I'm going to have to buy more of them because now everyone wants their own scrubber. 
and they're great. Our entire family has been enjoying Manscaped products. And if you're ready to enjoy them as well, you can get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with code LawNerd. That's right. Just go to manscaped.com and use code LawNerd for 20% off and free shipping. New year, all about you. Nicely groomed. All right, let's get back to today's episode. As we move on, we are moving on to a case that's really captivated the nation, but we're not going to be hearing too much more about the frustration of many. Of course, I'm talking about the November 13th quadruple homicide of four University of Idaho students. It not only shook the university community, but the internet had all of the feelings about this case. Um, And as it went week after week without an arrest, people were frustrated. And you could absolutely see that in reporting. But in reporters standing in the snow out in front of the house, um, the off-campus housing where these students were killed, giving reports that were not really a ton of updates. Kind of, we saw police come in and out. We saw them collect evidence from the location or we're hearing these things on the internet or or one of the students, um, the family spoke to the media but we weren't getting a ton of reports and now we know why. We saw an arrest come down right at the end of December that was announced on December 30th of Brian Kohlberger, a 28-year-old criminal justice student from Washington State University, which is very close to where University of Idaho is in these students. It's kind of less than 10 miles uh, in the range that he was driving back and forth. And we know that now because the affidavit has been made public. I went through this in depth over on YouTube. Today is going to be kind of a key points and takeaways from the affidavit before we get into the defamation case, because I've had time to process it a little bit more and think about it a little bit more after covering it with a first look. And there's some information in there that I think is really important that in a first look, you don't have, of course, the the hindsight (laughs) that you have after, for me, I've had some time to think about this case. But We've also seen the court issue a non-dissemination order, which is essentially a gag order saying that no one is going to be talking about this case, not the investigators, not the defense attorneys, not the attorneys, no one except through court hearings and court documents, no extrajudicial statements, no statements out of court. So as we go to this affidavit and kind of talk about the key takeaways, this is really going to be all we'll see. What I expect to see next, eventually this a defendant will enter a plea. Um, I expect that that will be a plea of not guilty. We'll enter a plea and this will go under way to preliminary hearing. Whether we will see that preliminary hearing streamed or not is unknown at this point. If we do, I will cover it if it is streamed. The preliminary hearing is really just showing that the person who is in custody is more likely than not the person that did it. And we will see likely the information in the probable cause affidavit detailed in court through witnesses. Whether they will choose to bring in the surviving roommate witness that we're going to talk about in a moment will be the choice of the police. They don't have to do that at preliminary hearing. They can just bring in one or two police officers to go through all of the evidence they gathered, much like the probable cause affidavit that is so detailed, and just go through that for the probable cause to hold someone over to trial after a preliminary hearing. So, If that is uh, televised and we cover it, it might not give us a ton more information than what we already have on the probable cause affidavit now. Then this case will undergo the process to go to trial, whether that will be 
soon, whether the defendant will demand a speedy trial and not waive any time, or whether the defense attorney and the defendant will take their time, want to do their own investigation. And we've already seen some of that. Then this trial probably won't go to trial in 2023, and we'll see it earlier or mid-2024. And why I say we've already seen some of that is we know that there was a court order to stop remediation or stop cleanup of the crime scene, the apartment where these four students were killed. And that was done so that the defense could start taking pictures and doing a bit of their own investigation, which is unique in this case. Normally, by the time there's an arrest, crime scenes have um, deteriorated, been cleaned up or what have you. It's very interesting to see the defense able to get a court order to stop the cleanup of that location and be able to go in and do a bit of their own on-site investigation. So that is kind of unique to this case based on how long this investigation took. And again, long is relative. From a quadruple homicide to an arrest in a month is, is frustrating for the internet that would like answers faster and frustrating, I'm sure, for the victim's families. But this was not a rushed investigation. And I personally rather see a thorough and more um, steadfast investigation that dots all its I's and crosses all its T's than an investigation that makes kind of leaps um, to get quickly to an arrest when it's not necessary because that can put your prosecution down the road at risk. And I rather see a prosecution go forward and not get overturned on appeal and then have to do it all over again because I think that that ends up putting people through it more than having this take longer and have a a solid and in fact based evidence based prosecution. So I appreciate it, but I can understand where the frustration is. So let's look a little bit at this affidavit. And again, this is not a full breakdown of the entire affidavit. It is a summary of the most important parts of this affidavit to me. One of the things I think that has been overlooked in this affidavit is not that a surviving roommate saw somebody in the house, but it's how important that information is to the affidavit and and to this entire investigation. So I've seen, unfortunately, internet interneting and a lot of <sighs> frustration or lack of compassion for the surviving roommate. And we're going to go through what information the surviving roommate gave to investigators and why this helped this case kind of be solved, not kind of, actually be solved the way that it was solved. So when they talk to the surviving roommates, the affidavit says on the evening of November 12th, 2022, Chapin and Kernoodle were seen by surviving roommate BF at the Sigma Chi house at the University of Idaho campus. And then they give the address to it from approximately 9 p.m. on November 12th to 1.45 a.m. on November 13th. BF also estimated that at approximately 1.45, uh, Chapman and Cornoodle returned to the King Road residence. BF also stated that Chapman did not live at the King Road residence, but was a guest of Cornoodle Chapman being Ethan Chapman, who I didn't know was a triplet um, until I saw media reporting of that over the weekend with um, Ethan's siblings also going to University of Idaho. It then goes on to talk about the fact that Gonsalves and Mogan were at a local bar, the corner club with the location in here, and that they can be seen in video footage provided by that club between 10 p.m. on November 12th and 1.30 a.m. November 13th. 
at approximately 1.30, they went to a local food uh, truck called the Grub Truck and that they saw that on um, live streams from their food truck streaming platform. It's so interesting to me how um, how simple things that we don't always think about integrated into this case, including the timeline being set up, not just by the people that were there, but by the fact that this food truck live streams their food truck on Twitch and it's available for public viewing. And they were able to say, okay, this is the timeline of when they were there because we can see it. And then a private party gave a ride to Gonsalves and Mogan um, home at like 156 from downtown. DM and BF both made statements during interviews that indicate the occupants of the residence were home by 2 a.m. So this starts giving the police a timeline and a sleeper, at least in their rooms, by approximately 4 a.m. This is with the exception of Cronoodle, who received a DoorDash order at the residence at approximately 4 a.m. Uh, law enforcement identified the DoorDash delivery driver who reported this information. They will probably have other information from the app about whether this was handed to someone, whether the DoorDash delivery was inside the house, whether it was left on the doorstep, et cetera. But this starts to give a timeline and a timeline of when other people were at the house. It goes on to say DM stated she originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the south side of the second floor. DM stated she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. Um, by what she stated sounded like Gonsalves playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms, which were located on the third floor. A short time later, DM said she heard who she thought was Gonsalves say something to the effect of there's someone here. A review of records obtained from a forensic download of Cronoodle's phone showed that this could have been Cronoodle as her cellular indicated that she was likely awake and using TikTok at approximately 4.12 a.m. So we are now starting to get to a timeline that at at least 4 a.m. there was a DoorDash delivery at 4.12 a.m. Kernoodle is um, actively, it seems like, using the TikTok app. And I say that because the police state using the TikTok app, and I know that that app tracks quite a lot of information, CEG, other coverage by me, but that they're going to be able to know the difference between um, whether the app is just running, whether it's actively being engaged with and scrolling and liking and all that commenting and all that stuff. So they will know if this is an active use or a passive use. So when it indicates in this probable cause that Kernoodle was actively using their phone at 4.12 a.m., we have more of a timeline. DM stated she looked out of her bedroom, did not see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house. DM stated she opened her door a second time when she thought she heard what um, when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Kernoodle's room. DM then said she heard a male voice say something to the effect of "It's okay, I'm going to help you." At approximately 4:17 a.m., a security camera located um, at the residence next door, to the immediate northwest of the King Road residence, picked up distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. A dog can also be heard barking numerous times starting at 417. The security camera is less than 50 feet from the west wall of Kernoodle's bedroom. So the police are now saying at 412, Kernoodle is on um, the phone, uh, on the TikTok app. And then at 417, this picks up a thud, uh, barking and a whimper less than 50 feet away from the wall. DM stated she opened her door for a third time after she heard crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking toward her. DM described the figure as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past DM. She stood in a frozen shock phase. 
The male walked towards the backsliding glass door. DM locked herself in her room after seeing the male and did not state that she recognized the male. This leads investigators to believe that the murderer left the scene. The combination of DM's statement to law enforcement, review of the forensic downloads, and the records from BF and DM's phone, a video of the suspect uh, video as described below, leads investigators to believe that these homicides occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. Here's why all of that matters. And I've seen uh, criticism of the roommate. Why didn't the roommate do this? Why didn't the roommate do that? That's not um, what I ever do on this channel. It's not what I'm going to do because no one knows how they're going to act. And hindsight is a much different thing than responding to a situation in your home at four o'clock in the morning. Um, But without this description of who we believe to be the defendant based on the arrest, but again, remember, there is a presumption of innocence here. This is a probable cause affidavit. Yes, the evidence is very strong, but yes, this has still not been vetted through court. With that said, we now have a description of a a gender, a height, and a um, identifying feature. So what law enforcement does after this is they start looking at video. They do a video canvas of the area and find a vehicle. They find a vehicle in and about the area. They're able to track that vehicle or a vehicle like that vehicle around the campus of Washington State University and elsewhere. But when they go and pull who vehicles like this are registered to, they're able to narrow it down to someone whose driver's license shows they match this rough description. And you are now able to establish probable cause to start doing search warrants. You can't just do broad search warrants on every single person who's ever in this location or every car that was in this location in a six-hour period because it might have been a murder. That's not how it's not how the Fourth Amendment works. Without going too in-depth into it, this description gives the police enough information to say, this is what we are looking for. And then they also have a shoe print um, that they were able to find that's leaving the same direction. So they're able to use uh, external evidence that is a shoe print that is that is brought forward that looks like a van shoe print leaving outside a DM's door to verify, hey, we've got a shoe print in the same area where this person, the roommate, said they saw a person. So now we have a piece of, of independent evidence, we have a witness statement, and then we have this car um, leaving out of the area at a quick rate of speed at the same period of time. Then they are able to look for cars that match that description. They get that car back to this defendant. When they get this car back to the defendant, the defendant matches the general description. They're able to then get a phone number. How do they get his phone number? Well, the defendant had been stopped for vehicle offenses previously, and they had the phone number from the officers asking at those traffic stops. They're then able to get a search warrant for court for a limited period of time, and then tie the phone's path of travel to the vehicle's path of travel. Then they expand the search for the phone and they're able to find the phone at the location of these murders, not only the next morning, but also 12 different instances prior to the date of these murders that that phone had been in that area. So now they're able to build a bigger timeline of where they believe this defendant went, his uh, contact with this home and more. But we don't get to all of those search warrants without this surviving roommate's description. And I even feel hesitant saying that 
because I don't, A, one of the, other than facts, not fuckery, one of our, one of our guiding principles is don't cry, don't teach people to crime better. But with this description, we have more that the police can go on faster. But what we also learn from this affidavit is that there is a knife sheath that is left at the crime scene with a um, single subject DNA on it, and that is the suspect DNA profile. So there is a knife sheath left um, in one of the beds with two of the victims that they are able to get DNA off of and then start matching to people. But DNA can take quite a long time to process. And what we know from this affidavit is that they did not have this defendant's DNA in the system yet. So when they're running this DNA, it is my assumption based on what is in the probable cause affidavit and what's not in the probable cause affidavit, that they were not able to get a match. They got the suspect profile from the DNA, but not a match. So having the visuals of the defendant allows them to get to the cell phone, to the car, and track this defendant's movements. That gets them to Pennsylvania, where the defendant has traveled with his father. And then law enforcement goes through your trash. They can do that and is able to get familial DNA that is a close match that they believe is the subject's father at that home. So they've got the subject staying at the home, now the defendant, and they're able to get stuff out of the trash. The DNA looks like it's his father. Of course, now that he's been arrested, they will do a DNA swab on him and try to match the DNA to the sheath. Those results will go to all the attorneys and the defense attorney, whether it's a match or not. But we don't have to wait for this defendant to end up with DNA in the system because they're arrested on something else or for them to try to track back familial DNA and only have that. If you don't know who the family is, how are you going to find familial DNA? It seems that it wasn't in the system where they would have had it. So the roommate's description really becomes the cornerstone of this arrest being effectuated so quickly. So while the internet might want to um, ask a bunch of questions, and don't worry, if this ever goes to a trial, the defense attorney will ask those questions. Well, police weren't called till hours and hours later. There will be a conversation about that. We can have questions about that later. Now is not the time. The fact that the roommate gave a description made this arrest happen much quicker. And if this defendant is someone who's inclined towards criminality going forward, if they had gotten away with this, who knows what could have happened? Could more people have been harmed or killed in the defendant trying to not get caught down the road as this stretched out for months or possibly years? It's po Yes, it's possible. So did the roommate's identification bring this arrest about more quickly? Yes, absolutely it did. So the DNA would have eventually gotten this defendant, but not until his DNA was in the system for some other reason. So those are kind of my big takeaways from this. Do I know yet what to make of the phone being in that area 12 times prior to this? Well, in my, in my, in my mind, it's either they were casing this location because the home was being targeted or individuals in the home were being targeted or both. An individual in the home was being targeted and this was determining how to get in and out of the home and the patterns of people being in the home. It seems to be casing the location and the individuals because it doesn't seem that the phone is in other areas where 
these roommates are or traveled, but maybe they will be. Maybe we'll see that to come. Remember, the probable cause affidavit is to give enough to get probable cause. It's not to give everything, and they won't give everything. They won't give everything that they know. They won't give everything that they have. They're not here to answer the internet's questions, even though there are times I also wish that they were. I want to know too. You all know how nosy I am. I'm curious. I love answers. I hate waiting. It's uncomfortable. But we're in the, we have to wait because due process. And it's hard. I know it's hard. I don't like it either all the time. But that is due process. What we can't do is jump to conclusions. And that's what we are seeing in this next case. And it is deeply uncomfortable. So again, if you want a full breakdown of this affidavit, it is long. It's over on my YouTube channel. We are going to talk about the defamation case that came out of this and the internet's fuckery. The internet's fuckery. Emily, just call it what it is. Why are you taking the deep breath? Call it what it is. And the internet fuckery. But first, thank you to our sponsor. When covering difficult cases, it is always a reminder to me that sometimes life can be very unpredictable. And one of the adulting things that we don't talk about nearly enough is life insurance. Today's sponsor, Policy Genius, takes the difficulty out of where to start because they've done it for you already. Policy Genius was created to make shopping for life insurance easier for you so that you can provide for your loved ones. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry so it makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from large life insurance providers like Prudential. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $17 a month for up to $500,000 of coverage. With Policy Genius, there are no added fees. Your private information stays private, and they're not incentivized by the insurance providers, so there's no reason for them to recommend one over the other. It's no wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Trustpilot and Google. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find it. Head to policygenius.com slash lawnard or click the link in the description below to get your free life insurance quote today and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com slash lawnard. Thanks so much for sponsoring Policy Genius so we can continue covering topics like today's. All right, let's get back to this episode of The Emily Show. So, the internet. This is a defamation suit that is wild to me. And as I started to cover the Idaho murders case, I, first I hesitated. Here's the thing. When cases are breaking news, when there hasn't been an arrest yet, there can be a lot of rush to get information out. I am not in the news reporting business. I am not a reporter. I am a legal analyst. I do live. I talk about lawsuits. I talk about live court coverage. I talk about cases that are in court. So it is very rare that I will um, cover a case that there has not been an arrest yet. Does it happen? Yes. Is it very rare? Yes. And it's only if I really think there is some input I can give from my perspective to help. Because generally, the rush to get information out can lead to maybe not always the best information. And I am not in the field of fact-checking things. I wait till they're in court. And I'm like, this person says this in court. And then that person says this in court. And this is the process. And this is the law. And let's all see what's going on. 
not an investigative reporter, just a girl with a microphone, a lot of questions, and a law degree. So I waited until there was an arrest in this case to really cover it because then I feel like at least with my background as a DA, I can help walk through the process, hopefully help dispel some of the frustration about whether this investigation took so long, talk about what a gag order even is, what this means, and what the rest of the process looks like to give you the facts, not hyper-sensationalized. Talk about the perspective from someone who's worked in this system, worked with, you know, victims of crime and families of victims of crime and someone who's had personal experience with losing friends um, to crime as well. So with all of that, this is the kind of shit that I hate. I don't often come into these cases with strong feelings. This is not one of those cases I have feelings. So we're going to break down the strength of this defamation case, but just know this is the kind of stuff that I hate. I hate the internet running with this person did it. I love when the internet has questions. We saw that be very helpful in the Gabby Petito case. We saw video that vloggers had narrowed down not just a timeline, but a location. In this case, we saw video from stores and TikTok, uh, not TikTok stores, well, and TikTok stores and TikTok and live streams on Twitch and, and ring cameras. We saw all of that build a timeline. And that is very helpful. There are boundaries of where the help ends and the harm begins. And I feel like we are in, I'm sorry, I didn't even give you the warning that I was going on a tangent because I didn't know it was happening. Here it is. There is room for boundaries. There is room to ask questions without making accusations, especially if those accusations can lean defamatory. There is room to talk about what we're seeing and what may might make sense or might not make sense to ask for transparency from platforms and from police agencies and from government agencies. There was so much room for transparency. What there's not room for is unhelpful accusations, not questions, accusations. And it's wild. So let's get into this defamation case you may or may not have heard of uh, stemming out of TikTok we got to figure out where the boundaries of the internet is. I'm not done with my tangent. I thought I was because there isn't really an etiquette for the internet in modern time. I mean, we all have our own. I have my own rules for how I internet. We have rules for how we have the chat. We have, we have our own boundaries and guidelines, but free speech means those boundaries and guidelines can't really be broadly applied. People can wild out on the internet and defamation is the boundary to that speech. But what happens when it is so damaging or can be so damaging, but the process to deal with defamation can take so long? We saw that in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. It was six years before he went to court and told his side of what happened and the jury sided with him. So where are those boundaries? And I think it's up to us as a public to say, hey, this crosses a line for me. I'm not engaging with this kind of content. And that's for us to start to decide where we engage and where we don't engage. And while I don't advocate for silencing people, I absolutely don't advocate for canceling people. I do advocate for us to say, I'm not engaging with this content. Because again, if it's not getting views, it's not getting in your algorithm and it's not being served to more and more people and it's not going to go viral and grow, but that's on all of us to do. And then asking for transparency and how social media is pushing things. 
How is your algorithm working that these things are going viral when they may or may not be defamatory? How does someone get something taken down that could be defamatory? And as we're seeing more behind the scenes of how TikTok works and talking about how algorithm works, we're going to start to have more of these conversations about transparency. And when we get to Gonzalez versus Google, we're, there's two cases, one with Google and one with Twitter. We're going to have more conversations about whether the algorithms are publishers and whether in a circumstance like this, after the Supreme Court rules on this case, is this a circumstance where this professor could sue TikTok and their parent company, ByteDance, and not just the person who's speaking? Are we going to see that change come? And we haven't talked about that Supreme Court decision yet, but these are the questions that we have to answer and we have to start to decide as a society, where are the boundaries, like societally? Um, not where the government is shutting down speech because we don't want that or I don't want that, but where are the boundaries? And then how do you deal with the boundaries? And then how do platforms deal with the boundaries? And where's the transparency in it all? So let's talk about TikTok and defamation. Rebecca Schofield versus Ashley Gouliard, or Gouliard, Gouliard. I think I think that's how we're pronouncing it. We're going to go through this um, because I haven't covered it yet really broadly on any of my platforms. This is a 12-page defamation lawsuit. In November 2024, so 20, here's the problem. The sentence says in November 2022, four students and my brain combined those words all together. In November 2022, four students at the University of Idaho were murdered at a home near campus. The tragedy has garnered attention and inflicted great sorrow through the university, the state, and the country. Defendant Ashley, a purported internet sleuth, dedicated, uh, decided to use this community's pain for her own uh, for her online self-promotion. See, I was thinking own self-promotion, and then I was like online self-promotion. She has posted many videos on TikTok falsely stating that plaintiff Rebecca Schofield, a professor at the university, participated in the murders because she was romantically involved with one of the victims. I don't, I can't imagine the pain that this would also cause the victims' families. It says next that Gouliard's statements are false. Professor Schofield did not participate in the murders and she has never met any of the victims, let alone entered a romantic relationship with them. Gouliard's videos have been viewed millions of times, amplifying Gouliard's online persona at the expense of Professor Schofield's reputation. Professor Schofield now sues Gouliard for defamation. Again, this suit was filed December 21st, 2022, before the arrest was made in this case. For, and I will make a note because I often say I will do this and then forget, there are a few channels on YouTube that I quite like that have reacted to some of these TikToks. Some have been deleted, some have not. Um, so if you want to go look at the TikToks for yourself, I would recommend those channels that are talking about it and giving critique to it um, because it deserves, in my opinion, critique and criticism, but giving critique to it. This isn't just someone asking questions. This is someone saying, this person committed these murders. This is the motive. This is how it went down. And it's wild to me. So um, I will link a Tuesday's video and some others down below that I've, I have watched. If you are curious in seeing some of these TikToks for yourself without raising the view count on those particular TikToks, because that's the, the interesting thing with curiosity. It's you don't want the algorithm to keep serving these TikToks to people, right? The parties, plaintiff Rebecca Schofield is an individual residing in Idaho, defendant Ashley Gouliard, an individual residing in Texas. She is a TikTok personality who purports to solve crimes online. 
jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is proper. There's diversity of citizenship. In con- uh, the amount in controversy exceeds $75,000. Again, that's going to be the, um, the amount in controversy is going to be the jurisdictional amount. This is filed in Idaho. Whether we will see an argument down the road that a Texas resident who posts something about someone that lives in Idaho can be sued in just uh, in federal court in Idaho versus in Texas will be an interesting argue uh, interesting argument. So we will see if this defendant answers this lawsuit and says, "By the way, if you want to sue me, come sue me in Texas. That's where I reside." And we talked about this ages ago in the Toddy Westbrook case. Where is online jurisdiction proper? It's actually one of the arguments I wanted to see in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard uh, appeal before that appeal settled. I wanted to see the argument about online publication because the case law has not caught up quickly to online publications. So they say venue is proper because Professor Schofield is an Idaho resident and a substantial part of the events giving rise to the claims occurred in Idaho. So the discussion is about things that happened in Idaho. But if this defendant has never set foot in Idaho, are they going to have the minimum contacts needed with Idaho to make Idaho jurisdiction proper? Or will they skip the jurisdiction argument and start litigating the the kind of the allegations of the case? We'll see. Factual allegations. In the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022, four students at the University of Idaho were tragically murdered in a home near campus. It is a tragedy that has gripped the entire university community, forever affecting the students' families brought tremendous sorrow throughout the state of Idaho and garnered national media attention. To respect the privacy of the victims and their families, this complaint refers to the victims by their initials, KG, MM, X, K, and E, C. Professor Schofield was not in Moscow, Idaho, when the murders occurred. She and her husband were in Portland, Oregon, visiting friends. They stayed in a hotel checking out in the morning on November 13th. So there you are going to have a digital trail that that individual's there, right? So if this goes to trial, if, I mean, I can't imagine that it would, but if this ever went to trial, it'd be like, here is my health, my cell phone and my husband's cell phone pinging in Oregon. Here is a hotel receipt. There's probably video of them checking in and checking out. Here is our credit cards being charged in and around Oregon. Here are all the things that indicate I was not in that state. They drove from Portland to Moscow, a drive of more than five hours after uh, arriving after law enforcement officers had discovered the murder. So they weren't even back in Idaho until later. Professor Schofield did not commit or in any way participate in the murders of the four students. Having to even put that in a defamation lawsuit has to be wild for this professor, right? Professor Schofield taught at the University of Idaho since January 2016. She became the chair of the history department in July 2021. None of the four students who were murdered even took, or sorry, ever took a class from Professor Schofield. Although the University of Idaho is a relatively small university, she does not recall ever meeting any one of these students. The professor has also never met Ashley Gouillard. Ashley Gouillard promotes herself on Amazon and TikTok. On Amazon? Like, is she selling books? I don't want to know. On Amazon and TikTok is an internet sleuth that solves high-profile unsolved murders by consulting tarot cards and performing other readings to obtain information about the murder about the murders. She is purported to solve the murders of musician uh, Karishnik, uh, Curry Bell, a.k.a. Takeoff, um, the Sh- Shankila Robinson case, Tiffany Valente, Kevin Samuels, and the November murders of the University of Idaho. 
TikTok is a social media platform through which a person can post shorts of videos, typically no more than one to two minutes. TikToks primarily are the are recorded by the person using uh, her own cell phone to record the video and then posting through the person's account on the TikTok platform. Individuals with TikTok accounts can review other people's TikToks accounts. I mean, I think view is the right word there, not review, but view. Uh, can post comments on various TikToks and repost other users' posts. I think that's fair. Lawyers still struggle with how to describe the internet and court pleadings. Like, I don't think there's any set way to describe the internet. Like, how do you how do you define TikTok to the to a judge? How do you like encapsulate what it is? But it's hard. I I, I empathize for lawyers trying to do it. I think review possibly is the wrong word. That is gentle, just critique of. Because review to me indicates they can, I don't know, do 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 more than just view it, comment on it, share it. I think there's a way to say that. But moving on, on November 22nd, 2022, Gouillard began posting TikTok videos about the November murders at the University of Idaho. She asserted that the murderer had some history with one or more of the victims and that the murderer was someone who previously was involved with one of the victims, quote unquote, possibly an ex. On information and belief, Gouillard has never been to Moscow, Idaho. Oh, they say that there might not be jurisdiction in the lawsuit. Okay. <laughs> well, they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to strongly make that that argument for minimum contacts. So we're gonna get back to talking about international shoe, I feel, in this case. And this might have to move to Texas. Um, we'll see. On information and belief. Gouillard has never been to Moscow, Idaho, or any other location in Idaho. They keep, they double down. And that she has no basis to make factual statements about any of the events that have occurred there. They could have just gone with, she's never interacted with the professor and has no knowledge. On or about November 24th, uh, Gouillard posted six TikTok videos on her account, and then they linked the account. Um, Ashley is in the Book of Life, footnote one. What's footnote one say? Given the continuing nature of Gouillard's tortious conduct, a hyperlinked Gouillard TikTok account has been provided. Professor Schofield prays for relief against all such false statements, whether specifically referenced herein or created after the filing of this complaint. They're like, this is ongoing. Will we see them ask for an injunction soon? Maybe. Um, in which she falsely, so this is going back to the complaint, in which she falsely states that the professor, the chair of the history department, was responsible for the four students' deaths. Here's the thing. Accusing someone of a crime is defamation per se. Murder is, in fact, a crime. Accusing someone of committing horrific crimes is, is going to fall under, I don't know what else you sue for other than defamation, defamation per se, saying, and this professor, I think we have a strong argument that the professor's not a public figure and wasn't known to the public until these TikToks were created about her that she certainly wasn't a public figure in connection with this case. So then we're not even getting to actual malice. So if we're not dealing with a public figure, we don't have actual malice. And if you have defamation per se, you don't have to prove financial damages. It's Did they say something that's not true? It seems like we have a um, an interesting start to a defamation lawsuit. It goes on to say that two of the TikToks directly and falsely state that the professor ordered the execution of the four students. Everything I just said times 1,000. Three of the TikToks either falsely implied or directly stated that the professor had been involved in a relationship with one of the murdered students, KG. 
three of the TikToks posted to her website on uh, three of the TikToks posted. I, when they say on her website, I I think what they mean is on the uh, on the TikTok account, not like her website. The way they've written this, three of the TikToks Gouillard posted on her website indicates to me that Gouillard has a separate website and took a TikTok and re-uploaded it. I don't think that's what they mean. I think they mean posted to her profile on November 24th, 2022. Also used Professor Schofield's photo from the University of Idaho website. So this is now um, opening someone up to not just internet hate and harassment, but you're also like this person by this name that works in this location that looks like this. <sighs> Upon information and belief, Gouillard did not ever receive permission to use Professor Schofield's official university photograph. Unfortunately, um, that becomes like a copyright issue. That's not really how the internet works. But I mean, I, I guess I could go after the, co the copyright seems beside the point to using the photo to identify this person by name and identify this person by location, by job, by university, and then by photo. Gouillard's November 24th, 2022 TikToks were not, used, were not based on any facts or any information known to Gouillard. Her statements that the professor ordered the murders, it's just so fucking wild to even say that sentence, even though it's in a defamation case. Because Siri, what? Just, what? The, it, what? Her statements that the professor ordered the murders and that the professor had a relationship with one of the victims are false. On the following day, November 25th, Gouillard posted an additional five TikTok videos falsely alleging that the professor ordered and planned the murders of the four students. In three of the videos, Gouillard falsely stated that the professor and a student at the University of Idaho JD, footnote two, together planned the murders of the four students. Footnote two. The complaint uses the initials JD to protect the individual's privacy and not to perpetuate Gouillard's false statements. Professor has not met student JD and has never even uh, and has not ever had him in class. She has never partnered with him on anything. She did not partner with him to murder four University of Idaho students. At some point, how do you even how do you even deny something that's so wild? So defamation per se is accusing someone of committing a crime. This is now, as alleged, again, lawsuits are allegations. But again, I will link where I've, I've seen some of these TikToks and they are, the TikToks are accurately represented in this complaint. And they haven't even, I mean, lawyers tend to take to a advocacy in their writing and they should, you write your complaint in the light, light most favorable to your to your client. Um, they're not even over sensationalizing or or um, uh, fully and accurately going deeper than they could. I mean, they are going through surface level what was said without more. And you could absolutely see them being more dramatic about this. I think the lawyers probably don't want to because it's bad enough. But this is. This is what's said. This is what's said in the TikToks. I've seen the TikToks. Um, it does say that this professor ordered these murders. Um, 
planned these murders with another student. I've also seen this TikToker say, take me to court, essentially. Take me to court. Um, I have evidence. There was a doubling down after a season desist. I'm sure we'll get there. Emily, keep reading. The November 25th, 2022 TikToks were not based on any facts or any information known to the defendant. Her statements that the professor partnered with another student to plan or carry out the murders are false. On November 28th, TikToker posted six TikTok videos, which falsely alleged either by explicitly stating or by posting texts with her videos that Professor Schofield participated in or was otherwise responsible for the murders of the four University of Idaho students, and that she did so because of a, because of her, I think that's a typo, uh, I think that is meant to be her, because of her prior relationship with KG. In one of the video, uh, in one video, she wrote the words, Rebecca Schofield's thoughts as she ordered the murder of four University of Idaho students. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, it, they're going to be able to just play these videos. I'm, I'm sure these attorneys have not only started the process of subpoenaing TikTok, but also downloading all of these immediately um, because some of them have been deleted. But it doesn't matter if they're deleted. Putting them up is enough, especially with defamation per se, where you don't have to prove damages. The November 28th, 2022 TikToks are not based on any facts. And then they go and deny it again. On November 28th, um, TikToker had been directly informed that her TikTok videos alleging that the professor was involved in the murders were false. Nevertheless, she continued posting her TikTok videos, aware that they were false. In one TikTok video, she wrote, quote, I don't care what y'all say. JD and Rebecca Schofield killed, and then they used the victim's initials. Rebecca was the one to initiate the plan and hired JD. On November 29th, the professor, through counsel, sent a cease and desist letter informing her that her TikTok videos stating that the professor was involved in the murders or that she had a romantic relationship with KG were false and defamatory, demanding she take down the videos and demanding she cease making such videos, demanding she issue an apology to the professor. TikToker did not stop posting defamatory TikToks, falsely stating the professor was involved in the murders and that she had a romantic relationship. On November 29th and November 30th, TikToker posted additional TikTok videos falsely stating that the professor was involved in ordering and directing the execution of the murders of the four students. She was not. Since December 1st, TikTokers continued making false statements in her TikTok videos, falsely asserting the professor's involvement in the murder of four University of Idaho students, falsely stating the professor was involved in ordering the murders and was present in Moscow, Idaho to ensure that they were carried out. She falsely stated in her alley a, quote, Rebecca Schofield is going to go to prison for the murder of four University of Idaho students, whether you like it or not, end quote, December 1st. B, quote, I'm not worried about Rebecca Schofield suing me because she will be using her resources to fight for murder cases. Quote, she ordered the execution, the murders of victims' names, end quote, December 1st. C, Professor Schofield's motive in ordering the murders was and finding someone to carry it out was because she was dating a student, December 4th. D, Professor Schofield decided to kill the students because um, victim KG wanted to take a break from their relationship, December 5th. E, Professor Schofield was going to help the person she hired carry out the murders, achieve the person's dream of playing on the University of Idaho tennis team. Um, what? Uh, what? Wait, let me just, 
Let me workshop this real quick. It's alleged that this professor hired someone to carry out the murders because that person's dream was to play on the University of Idaho tennis team? What the fuck is even happening on TikTok? There are going to be people who use shit like this to argue, and I will get back to this complaint in a minute. We're only on subsection D. There's more. There are going to be people that use shit like this to argue that this is why trials shouldn't be televised. That this type of stuff is the reason that courtrooms should not be so open to the public. And that just makes me angry because there is there is so much good that comes with transparency. There is so much that the public wants to know about court. Not everyone can go sit in a physical courtroom. And I think courtrooms are not large enough for the public that's interested. Or even in these cases, when you have a quadruple homicide go to trial, there might not be enough room in a courtroom for anyone outside of the victim's family members who want to be there, who should be there. But the public has a right to be there too. Like in the Daryl Brooks case, there there were so many impacted by that case, so many injured, so many killed. There was not physical room in the courtroom for everyone to watch. So it was streamed to allow people to participate in the court process the way that they should. But this type of bullshit is going to be used as an argument to say, see, when you have the public involved, this happens. This has to be horrendous for this professor to go through. I can't imagine the phone calls they are getting. Look, this professor is probably getting subjected, and this is just me speculating because the internet's going to internet, to real, actual, ridiculous waves of, of unkind statements, comments, voicemails on an office phone, emails to a business email. This is not, you know, Dr. Spiegel complaining to Newsweek that two people called his office and said mean stuff to him after he testified at that be heard. I think this is probably real damage to, to this professor um, mentally, emotionally, and potentially reputationally. Because whenever you Google her in the future, this will always be connected to it. And I hope that are, I think most of us, you for sure, because you're a law nerd, so you I know, would be able to see this for what it is and just be like, I'm so sorry that this happened to you, that people made these allegations to you. But what about the people that don't dive a little bit deeper, that don't, that see the headline and are like, wait, what? Somebody on TikTok said this? What about the people who see it across their For You page and don't think more about it? What, how do you undo that? I don't know. I don't know. Um, And that's the thing with defamation. You can't put the shit back in the horse and the damage is done when the things are said. It gets fixed retroactively, but it doesn't stop the harm. I'm wondering if they're going to ask for an injunction. I would. I would absolutely ask for an injunction. <sighs> okay, we're back. Footnote F. JD killed the four students because, quote, Becca told me to, end quote, December 6th. And G, a reporter with the Spokesman Review newspaper was, quote, protecting the killer. What? In an article that suggested the TikToks were false. Imagine an article. Imagine an article suggesting the TikToks were false. Imagine it. And the thing is, do newspapers protect people? Yes. Do I think that's this case here? No. As with TikTokers prior TikToks, did I stop using the person's name? Yes. As I got more angry, I did. As with TikTokers prior TikToks falsely stating that the professor was involved in or ordered ordered the murders. TikTokers, December TikTok has no basis, in fact. So they keep 
saying the statement and then denying the statement and saying the statement and denying the statement. And we're not even done yet. Persons with TikTok accounts can comment on the TikTok's post and others they follow. Many TikTok users warned TikToker that her statements were false and that she was defaming the professor, among others. Well, good for you, TikTokers. Snaps to TikTok for being responsible and saying, girl, this is wild. Shut the fuck up. You can't, what you can't do is just say this shit. Defendant did not stop making false and defamatory TikToks despite being warned of their falsity multiple times by persons commenting on her TikToks. Shock. Equally concerning, other TikTok users commented that they believed the false statements and that the professor ordered the murders. I mean, difficult for the defendant, but good for her defamation case because I think maybe there's an argument. I don't want to teach people how to do this shit better, but maybe there's an argument like... Tucker Carlson used this argument and others have as well. Hey, it's so preposterous that nobody would believe me. Clearly, it's not meant to make a factual accusation. I don't think they can make that argument here. This isn't comedy. This isn't parody. This isn't hyperbole. This is, hey, I think blah, 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 blah defamatory statements that are being listed here. I don't think there's an argument that this is so ridiculous that no one would believe it. But if that was an argument made, you have all of the commenters saying they believed it. And maybe you have the voicemails or emails, and this is me speculating because the internet's going to internet, leaving leaving derogatory, hateful uh, messages, emails, or whatever, showing that they believed these TikToks, because this is the only place that's alleging this theory, to my knowledge. Equally concerning, other TikTok users commented that they believe TikTokers' false statements that the professor ordered the murders of the victims, that the professor was romantically involved with one of the victims, and that they have wondered when the professor would be brought to justice. On December 8th, the professor, through counsel, sent a second season to desist letter in closing the first and again demanding that TikToker take down the defamatory post. Rather than change her contact, TikToker made a TikTok. Look at my shocked face. A content creator making content out of a cease and desist? Weird. That's exactly what was going to happen. Rather than change her conduct, TikToker made a TikTok uh, showing the cease and desist letter, acknowledging she received it. The lawyers are like, well, at least we know she got it. And explaining that if the professor, through counsel, believed TikToker was making false statements, counsel would need to file actual legal documents in federal court asking me to remove it. I think they said, okay. A judge will then determine if I need to remove it. I feel like a judge is going to determine a lot more than that. Um, I think this TikToker also folded up the cease and desist letter and put it next to their toilet paper and made a statement about wiping their ass with it um, because I saw that TikTok on Natuzzi's channel. After receiving the cease and desist letter, TikToker on December 18th and 19th posted more than 20 new TikTok videos falsely stating that the professor was involved with the victim and that the professor's motive for the motive for the murders was to keep the victim from making their relationship public. So um, two cease and desist letters and just doubled the fuck down. Just doubled down. Look, man, cease and desist letters are a, a warning. 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 Lawsuit incoming. Um, but this TikToker could very well find themselves responsible for legal fees, not just their own, but this person's. And um, I don't. I just don't see how this. I just don't see how this goes well. This is not one of those defamation cases where you look at it and you kind of mince the words and parse them out. Could it be this? And could it be that? Is it clearly hyperbole? Is it clearly a joke? No, I don't. No, 
No, this is accusing someone of murder for hire with motive and then stating what the motive is and then repeating it over and over and over again. TikToker continued to publish the false statements about the professor on TikTok despite having no basis for the statements. Professor has never met TikToker, does not know her, does not know why TikToker picked her to repeatedly falsely accuse her of the tragic murders and being involved with one of the victims. Professor does not know. Um, Professor does know that she has been harmed by the false TikToks and false statements, I'm sure. TikTokers, false TikToks have damaged the professor's reputation. They have caused her significant emotional distress, one I can imagine. She fears for her life and for the lives of her family members, I can imagine. She has incurred costs, including costs to install a security system and security cameras at her residence. She fears that defendants' TikTok statements will motivate someone to cause harm to her and her family members. I can believe it. I can believe it. They, this is wild, but they put the, the arrested defendant in protective gear to move them because they are worried for that defendant's safety. In a high-profile case like this with four victims, I can imagine that they are worried that someone will try to take out the defendant during the defendant moving from a plane to a car to a this to a that. In court, he is in protective gear. I can imagine that this professor fears for her family. Also, don't be that person on the internet that looks at a TikTok and decides you need to harm somebody. That's not, that's not what the internet's for, folks. As I said, this case has pissed me off. Normally, I can look at these and be like, this is the pros, this is the cons. I've given you some of the arguments I could see. Could we try and nobody would believe it? It's wild defense. Maybe they could, but then you've got all the comments that believe it. Are they going to argue jurisdiction? Maybe they will. Does that reduce the, the weight of these allegations? No. First claim for relief, defamation, false statements regarding the murders. Yep. And then they went through again, kind of restating. Um, the online nature of TikTokers' false statements continues to harm and damage the professor. The TikToker's account has more than 100,000 followers. Some of her TikToks defaming the professor have 2.5 million likes, indicating that a person has viewed the video and liked it. 2.5 million likes is a lot. That's going to be millions more views. The professor has been damaged by the false statement. Her reputation has been tarnished. She has suffered extreme emotional distress from the constant public attention and ongoing online conversation regarding her quote-unquote role in the murders. Second claim, defamation, false statements regarding relationship. And then they go through that. And attorney's fees, I don't see um, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Could they have brought it? Possibly. Did they? No. This, and then they're asking for attorney's fees and then the regular prayer for relief, attorney's fees and cost, pre and post judgment interest. Um, look, not legal advice. You, free speech means you can say the things that you want. They just need to be true. So you can't say untrue shit. I also don't think that they're going to get away with arguing that this is opinion. Um, saying somebody executed um, for university students is not going not to fall under um, opinion for a jury or for a court. And I imagine just looking at the chat going on with the, the behind the scenes law nerds as I'm recording this, that a jury... Uh, a jury's feelings might lean into the what the fuck realm with all of this. Um, I imagine they want to keep it in Idaho. Jurisdiction will be the first argument we might see in this case. I'm not done covering this defamation case. This one's gone on to the docket and we're going to keep covering it. We might take a little break because there's another trial coming up. The Murdoch trial is getting ready to start at the end of January. It looks like that trial is going to go ahead as scheduled. And I'll be covering that live day to day over on the YouTubes. But 
I am very interested to see what this happens with this case. My hope is that this case settles immediately, that there is a very public apology to this professor, and the professor is allowed to move on quietly with their profession and their life. Though I imagine this has um, this has absolutely tainted the way the professor will see the internet ever again. Um, I can't imagine being subject to what this professor is probably subject to based on these TikToks, and that's um, a really sad, a really sad thing to see. But with that, God, the new year is just the new year is coming in hot, isn't it? It's it's wild. But I'm going to be here with you to break it all down. And with that. Thank you for being here and thank you for being all honored. May your family be well, or at least better than me. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. Our grocery store was out of like seven of my favorite things last time. I was like, where is everything? So may your shelves be stocked, hopefully, as we as we get in, as we get in the rest of the winter. May your families be well. I already said that. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you. I will see you in the next one. You can find more Lawnard goodness in our private Lawnard community over at lawnardsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the Quick Bits podcast and Quick Bits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Lawnard. <laughs>